I'm going to be back. If you didn't know I was gone, don't, don't tell me you didn't know I was gone. <laughs> uh, I see Alan Keeper here today. Congratulations, Alan, on a decision well made. Would you stand up? <laughs> As you know, Alan Keeper's decided to stay here, and uh, the Metro Board voted him congratulations by, by one vote, and I thought that was uh, good. <laughs> That's a little joke, see? Uh, I've been on the road <coughs> and uh, beginning 10 days ago in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and uh, going from there to Washington and Virginia, and last was the last night or the night before I was in Atlanta. And uh, so I'm a, a, a little tired today, but I'm glad to be home, uh, particularly beginning with our Passion Week. I had an interesting experience on Friday night. <clears throat> uh, was asked to speak at a parish in Atlanta on the theme of healing, and I did uh, fairly archetypical Pitmanese on the whole fact that there is a will to wellness within, and that uh, somewhere between our reconciling our animal and God natures, uh, we work uh, toward the quintessential human being. And I talked once again about uh, water and wine and bread as healing elements as a part of the quintessential search for wellness or wholeness. I began by saying it was a Friday night, uh, and uh, I was in a parish in suburban Atlanta, Holy Innocence, <clears throat> and I asked the rector, who's an old friend of mine, uh, what in the world are you doing having something on Friday night? If uh, we had something on Friday night, uh, people would stay away in droves. and. Uh, <laughs> He said, well, there was a time 30 years ago when uh, in that part of Atlanta, most of the men were traveling salesmen and were not home during the week. And so on Friday night, they would welcome the men home by having a parish supper and a Lenten program. So it was Friday night. Um, so I began by saying uh, on the theme of healing and wellness that I wonder what wellness would look like if we ever saw it. And uh, uh, was reminded of Don Williams that was with me and lecturing several months ago on Saturday when he responded to the question, what would wellness look like if we ever saw it? And that is that people wouldn't come to hear me lecture. <laughs> 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 Particularly on Friday night, for God's sake. <clears throat> I talked on Friday night saying that in the uh, inevitable rules of creation, uh, born from the time, uh, uh, from the womb of nowhere when time was birthed, that it seems to be uh, that these limitations, which are barriers and boundaries, have an ironic relationship in the fact that these barriers and boundaries, such as sickness and illness, a limitation, incompleteness, a trauma, a tragedy, and finally death, are boundaries to define life, but it is through crossing the boundaries that we discover new life. And um, <clears throat> I was noticing a slight agitation as I watch body language when I uh, lecture. When a cough level reaches a certain height, we know it's time to quit. 
I noticed that there was a young man, an uh, uh, attractive young man, maybe in his early 30s, who seemed to be, during my talk, uh, extremely moved. And I couldn't tell uh, whether his movement that I saw in him uh, was one of agreement or disagreement. One of the problems that we have with emotions is that they don't tell us what the feelings are. As we separate emotions into feelings, we know that feelings are the fire and emotions are the smoke. So when you see somebody crying as you speak, you're never sure uh, whether that emotion is expressing ang anger or fear or sadness or joy. Uh, I always choose uh, to believe that it's joy being experienced at this incredible profundity being paraded before the parishioners. <laughs> but in this case, um, after I'd finished lecturing about wholeness and wellness, there were some questions, and he raised his hand, and I responded to him first because he seemed to be responding to me so profoundly. And he said, all of that aside, all of that theology of hope, and all of that grace and redemption and optimism I hear from you, what about somebody who has no hope, medically speaking? And I responded, after a pause and appropriate silence, that maybe dying is the only way to get well. Now, I've said that before. It was not just a spontaneous response. It's something I believe and have said to human beings before with whom I've been in dark valleys, that maybe dying is the only way to get well. <clears throat> Afterwards, the rector informed me that this young man was a physician but even more so, his wife had terminal cancer. Now, when, <clears throat> when we speak at Passion Week, on Passion Sunday, where we will see a liturgical movement between the hosannas of Palm Sunday, uh, raising our voices at the triumphal entry of the King of Kings, now, we will move liturgically uh, through the cleansing of the temple uh, the Monday, Thursday, Last Supper, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, irrevocable reality of the Gethsemane cross, all in one week. And so our liturgy will move us uh, before the offertory uh, through the Eucharist, pointing toward the Passion. So it's an unavoidable reality to talk about the reality of death. Now some of you have heard before how absolutely I, enamored I am with the stark reality of a simple poem, a dog that dies and knows that it dies like a dog and can say that it knows that it dies like a dog is a man. Where in polite company, even in appropriate Anglican cathedrals, do we talk about death and its reality? And the fact that we have and carry continually this existential anger about this reality that we share in common with all the plants and all of the animals, the one reality that's inescapable. It's what Carlisle Marnie called the canker in the bowel of humanity. A dog that dies and knows that it dies like a dog and can say that it knows that it dies like a dog is a man. Now, 
death must be appropriated and integrated. It is, I think, a spiritual reality, though it's been claimed by psychology like most spiritual realities. <laughs> that one cannot live until one is reconciled to his own death. In the same way that one cannot become a father or a mother or a, an adult until they are reconciled with their own father and mother and with their own childhood. And so we cannot begin to live until we're reconciled with our own death. It's not terribly new for me to rehearse with you the American way of death. Now you heard me talk in relationship to some of my own primary experiences with death, how tempting it is in this culture, this extroverted Western culture, to deny death and project it uh, onto some other reality uh, such as uh, betrayal or denial. Our euphemisms are infamous. I enjoy reading small town newspapers because I spent my first 14 years doing so. Uh, but I was always struck by the euphemisms in the obituaries. I not only read the drumwright Derek regularly, uh, when it came out, <laughs> regularly. <clears throat> but my mother, who grew up in Lincoln, Arkansas, which is right near Greasy Valley, which is where her parents were from. <laughs> One of the reasons you know this is true is nobody would make this up, would they? <laughs> my mother used to subscribe to the Lincoln Times, and they even had better obituaries than the drumwright Derek. And you remember the euphemisms in those obituaries. It has gone on to his reward. Always had to laugh at that. <laughs> Death is a reward for what? The Old Testament says that it's a reward for abuse of freedom. And so if you read that correctly, they've gone on to be rewarded for their abuse of freedom. <laughs> It led my fantasy life into rich areas. Now, of course, you say, well, that's really talking about the reward of life after death. It's not talking about death, but that it's set on to their reward as if they didn't have to die. Or he was asleep in the Lord. Well, that's not terribly complimentary. If you remember, Peter and the disciples were asleep in the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. Passed on passed away. Now, the reason Americans do this uh, so frequently is because we are such a materialistic, which is different than material, we are a materialistic society that we see death as a dissolution of material. It's got to be a failure of some sorts. And we were such an extroverted culture, and, and indeed the entire West is an extroverted culture, that we expect that the loss of material is a failure or that a radical change or a declining sense of material is a failure like getting old or growing old. It's interesting that we as human beings value all old things except human beings. 
I mean, it's valuable to have old things in your house or to be from an old part of the country. Be from an old family. Huh? You remember that great line? Yeah, you know I'm going to say that, don't you? The definition of a good family is at one time it was better. To be from... (laughs) To be from an old family is a valuable thing, but it's not valuable to be old. So we value everything old except human beings. I think that this culture uh, for these few centuries of America's pre-adolescence, we are now in adolescence, I think, in America. It took us losing the war in Vietnam to do that, but we're beginning to grow up. I bet some of you wish this was a debating society where you could rise and take me on about that. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's not. <laughs> and so we value old things, but we don't value human beings that have some patina about them. And the reason for that is that we Americans are afraid of that which is dissolving or that which is declining. When in essence, if we pay attention to our theology at all, we realize that that which is growing old is growing. And growing toward wellness or wholeness. And that for me, a sense of uh, scar and wrinkle uh, means that there's personality. And those who uh, deny their own uh, life uh, tend to project that onto others and tend to never live their own lives. Now, for the reasons, then, that we have this incredible ability to betray life by denying death, it seems to me to have been rehearsed by both Judas and Peter. And so we stand in a long line. I think we have a particular American pathology, but we stand in a long line of those who betray life and deny death. And Judas, as you know, planted the kiss, the ironic kiss of betrayal on our Lord. I think the betrayal of life by Judas is one of the most difficult for human beings, not only because we have to be reconciled to the fact that somebody betrayed Christ and that Christ died, but also the fate of Judas, uh, which you remember. I'm often asked and have responded, probably more than I've been asked, what happened to Judas? Well, I think Judas is in heaven, and the reason I think Judas is in heaven if you can forgive me for my anthropomorphic spatial analogy. Um, I think Judas is in heaven, and the reason is because Peter is, and Peter uh, was no more guilty than Judas. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced, as I can be of anything, that had Judas lived, that he would have been sent out as an apostle, and we would have a St. Judas. The problem, of course, with Judas is that we not only have difficulty with one who betrayed our Lord and visited death on him through the ironic kiss, but we have problems with the fact uh, that there rests within us uh, a shadowy figure 
that might have some other name, but is no less betraying than Judas. And so we project uh, Judas onto all kinds of things and people, people in general and in particular. So betrayal and denial about death are part of what we must rehearse this week and then take responsibility for our own place, uh, our own uh, fingerprints being on that stone that's rolled on the grave. And what if Peter, God bless Peter, who denied that he ever knew Christ, uh, denied death because he was so afraid of his own death. What he knew, of course, was that <clears throat> the tide had turned from the betrayal, the arrest had been made, the prophecy was coming true. Peter had been told by his friend Jesus that before the cock crowed, he would deny him. And uh, if you remember, the cock crew and Peter is yet to part his lips to defend our Lord. Denied that he ever knew him. Well, you were with this radical rabbi, were you not? No, I wasn't. Well, your voice, your accent is Aramaic. You must be a friend of his. I don't even know him, says he. It wasn't that Peter was so much denying Jesus, which he did indeed, but that Peter was denying his own death because of his fear of dying. A greater love hath no human being than one would give her own life for another. <clears throat> I have never had as much difficulty with that since I've been a parent because it is apparent to me that if the hand grenade was thrown into the room, I would dive on it for my family. I would die before I would let my children or the one I love die. It's easier for me, and it is for most of us in our experience, uh, to predecease those we love because we know of the potential grief, the imagined grief. Each of us has played those scenarios out in our own mind. Each of us has dreaded and imagined uh, being predeceased by one we love, and many of us have experienced it. And we would prefer our own death. Even those of us who have sat in surgery when our friends or loved ones were having surgery, would rather be in there experiencing the surgery than sitting outside. So I haven't had as much trouble with the ability or willingness to give up my life for another because I've had that experience of, of willingness to do that. I haven't had my bluff called, but I, even if I did, I think I would still make the well-known martyred dive. But what I have trouble giving up is my expectations about others' lives. And those are a little more difficult for me to give up. Greater love hath no human being than he would give up his expectations about how another ought to live his life. Let the clerk record there was a nervousness that went through the crowd. <laughs> now what if I had to give up my expectations for the way it was that I thought that you were to live your life? and let you live your life any way you choose. I'd rather dive on a hand grenade than let my children do that. <laughs> when they have not 
become what I expected them to become or my spouse or significant others or those authority figures in my life that I projected my own inferiority onto who have disappointed me in one way or another, how come it is that I'm more willing to die than to give up my expectations about how somebody else ought to live his life? Now, that's a difficult. And the sort of opposite of that is true, and that is uh, I am willing, and I have said this to uh, my children, I am willing to give up my life for you, but I'm not going to give up my identity for you. So the reverse is true, and that is I'm not willing to live my life as you expect me to live it. Now, you remember that gestalt meditation that Fritz Perl gets credit for about, uh, which I believe really is a quotation from Camus, and that is, uh, don't walk in front of me, I might not follow. Don't walk behind me, I might not lead. Just walk beside me and let us be friends. Now in terms of giving up to another uh, their ability to live their own lives, is very difficult for us who have attached ourselves to others in nurture or in some kind of possessive love. Don't walk in front of me, I might not follow, and don't walk behind me, I might not lead. Walk beside me and let's be friends. It's very difficult for human beings. It's a kind of, of uh, living of life and letting expectations die that is difficult for us, very difficult for us. And so greater love path no one than that he would give up the expectations about how another ought to live his life. I'm not sure that that's possible. <clears throat> there would be, in a polyvalent kind of circular look at relationships, there would be one view that would be very important to say that one who has no expectations about how he ought to live his life has nobody supporting him or calling him to a vocation of living. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't have expectation for our children. God knows that we have to have an isometric principle of an immovable force against which they can push in order to gain their own strength. I mean, that's how butterflies strengthen uh, their wings in order to fly, is struggling with the cocoon. And so it is that we ought to have expectations and rules and values and all kinds of things for our children and others in order that they will have something to push against in order to gain their strength. But that's different from having conditions on whether we will love them, depending on whether they fulfill those expectations or not. It's a different view. God is not malicious, just subtle. And so, in the ability for us to give up our lives for another, uh, we are probably better able to do that literally than we are to do that spiritually or psychologically. Now, the implications for this are, of course, that death then, I'm talking about biological death, is both real boundary and metaphor for life. Now, one's head spins around when you begin to try to get your mind around such a, a, a complicated contradiction and paradox. But it's very important that we do have this dizziness of freedom. At death, 
is a reality which forces us to live while at the same time it's a metaphor for new life. Now, I, who have just raised the accusation that this culture denies death, would not want to be in the posture of denying death. I want you to know that uh, we do die and that Jesus died as dead as any dog that's ever lived. A dog that dies and knows that it dies like a dog and it can say that it knows that it dies like a dog is a man and Jesus was a man. And he sweat blood over his own death as surely as we and he cried over his friend's death, Lazarus, at the grave as I uh, did last Sunday afternoon at the Vietnam Memorial when I ran my index finger across the sharp engraved name of Philip Neisler, the best man of my wedding. I won't deny death. I won't project it or use the euphemism or roll out the fake grass that they did at my mother's funeral. I will prefer the dirt reality. Now, this death, you see, is, is kind of like time. And we are so bound by time and we're so bound by space I mean, we have beginnings and we have ends and it's difficult for human beings within the boundaries of experience to uh, leap those boundaries in imagination and imagine a time without time. A friend uh, sitting in the airport watching a clock that had stopped and reflected, how is it that of all places in the airport they would have a clock that is dead and I'm waiting uh, to catch a plane and don't have uh, a watch that works very well. And he made this reflection that that clock on the wall was dead right twice a day. <laughs> to his own knowledge, the watch he held on his wrist was never right any time of day. But that he would take the living reality over the dead certainty. Now take the living reality over the dead certainty. And I will take the living reality over the dead certainty of time and space. And there's something about me that I've already experienced that is not bound by time and space. I know it in my memory and my imagination. And there's something that is deep as my own bone marrow that knows that this time and this space are not <clears throat> the beginning and the end. That there is something beyond our beginnings and ends, a time when there are no beginnings and ends, and no need to deny or no need to betray. Teilhard de Chardin says, in this life we attempt to love, in the afterlife we will be loved. And this life, we are counted the minutes and hours, savored them, uh, we've denied them, we've projected them, we have worshipped the dead certainty, and we've not experienced the living reality.
I've had two near-death experiences in my one life. Uh, many of you have heard me rehearse, uh, God forgive me if it's any self-serving way about my near-death experience at age six when I was badly burned, carrying yet today those scars. The easiest ones are the ones on my legs. The most difficult ones are the ones that are emblazoned in my own psyche for that experience of near death at age six, where I hovered between life and death for 48 hours and finally did begin to prosper. And then it took me 30 years to begin to recount that near death experience and explain and understand why it was that I had this haunting call to give my life to something other than myself. Robert Johnson, who is a psychoanalyst in Southern California, says that when one is called into the deep dark journey of the valley of the shadow of death, that they must of course have the condolences, but also the congratulations because that life that is spared uh, then takes on a different kind of value. And people said to me for years, well, why in the hell are you going into the priesthood? You don't act like a priest. <laughs> Aside from the fact that I don't look like a priest, it's the greatest compliment I've ever had. <laughs> I couldn't decide whether to sell used cars or go on the stage, and so I went into the priesthood. <laughs> But you know, it was another five years before I was in touch with the reality that two years later I almost died again in another fire. And I've never told that story. When I was six, I was badly burned, third, third degree burns over half my body. And then two years later, we were at a family reunion near Greasy Valley, Arkansas. And my uncle Pittman, for whom I was named, I guess I still am named for him. <laughs> was a frying chicken in a deep fat fryer. Some of you may remember those. And in this old farmhouse, the, the only plug was in the single bulb that hung from the ceiling. And you would plug things into that electrical outlet on which the bare bulb would hang. And so, I acted like I was going to get a piece of chicken, and my Uncle Pittman slapped me uh, with a fly swatter, and I ran, and when I did, I hit the cord and pulled all the hot grease over on me. Thank you. <laughs> and so, once again, I had third-degree burns on one-third of my body, and uh, there was a time in the racing from there to Fayetteville to the hospital that they wondered whether I would survive. Now, the only reason I, there are lots of reasons why I tell those two stories. One is because it's the time of the year to tell them. Uh, second is because I think the implications of them for me are so overwhelming that they must have something universal in them because that which is most personal is most universal. And I would ask you to consider in this holy week uh, the denial and betrayal of death in your own life. 
Secondly, I would ask you to look at life and death as both being very real and each being metaphorical. Particularly on the death side as we ponder what it is about death that is so attractive to us. <clears throat> at the same time so repulsive that we deny it and betray it. And I would contend that anybody who moves toward that boundary consciously and with awareness will begin to see uh, the ironic nature uh, that life takes on its vitality by the boundary and by crossing the boundary we discover new life, whether it's in reality or metaphor. And if you want some evidence out of sacred literature, I commend to you reading the Passion Narratives in Holy Scripture. Read them again. And this time, read them as if the story were your own. Now, I end by saying that death for human beings is uh, a bit like sex for human beings. And that is to say that the church has really not ever dealt adequately with a good theology of death or sexuality because we're so afraid of both. But death in this culture, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, is a stranger. And until we greet death as not only a stranger, but as a reality, and not something that's going to rob us of our life, but something that's going to enliven us and give us an opportunity for new life. Until we do that, then we really can't call ourselves Christians. And once again, I'm not denying death as reality. It's got a foul stench in its breath, and I've smelled it firsthand. But on the other hand, if all there is to life is to live like dogs, then why don't we just get started? Well, there is something in us that says, no, we are called to something higher than the animal. And even our death, now dignified by God in Christ, may be to us as enlivening as our birth. There's something in us that knows that. And that's the reason we get up every morning. It's not just our biological function and desire for caffeine. <laughs> That there is something in us, even now, conceived in time, and yet beyond time, that is immortal. And if we can't hear that, then we can't be Christian. I am now ready to move toward the cross, and then proclaim that he is risen.